Hi, this is Midwesteration, and I'm Freya Bernson. A really quick plug here, I've received some interest from listeners in helping fund the podcast. And now, you can. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash Midwesteration and follow the prompts on that page. Any amount you choose to contribute is sincerely appreciated. Now, on to this week's episode. I had the great pleasure to travel to southern Indiana to interview Chris Fox and Rob McRae from Sycamore Land Trust. We met at Bean Blossom Bottoms on a perfect sunny day in mid-May. A challenge for any bird-savvy listeners. Let me know how many bird calls you can ID in the background of this interview. There were so many birds. It was amazing. This is a beautiful preserve. And Chris and Rob had so much good information to share. It was just it was a it was a wonderful trip. And I hope you enjoy this episode of Midwesteration. All right. I am standing at Bean Blossom Bottoms with Chris and Rob and I would like to ask you to to take a moment and kind of introduce who you are and uh, what your connection is to this place that we are standing at. Yeah, thanks uh, Thanks for having us. Uh, my name is Chris Fox. I am the Land Stewardship Manager at Sycamore Land Trust. Um, and I've been here for not quite four years. And uh, this place is, is really special to me because I've spent a lot of time here working on the boardwalk and doing some restoration work that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later. Hi, my name is Robert McCray, and I'm the Land Preservation Director at Sycamore Land Trust. Uh, my primary job at Sycamore is to work on all of our land acquisition projects. And Bean Blossom Bottoms is a really special place for me because it's, it's the area where I really direct a lot of my time when I look at acquisitions and want to acquire land so we can continue to build on uh, to the land we have here already uh, and expand it. Awesome. So I guess I'd like to start by, by kind of asking, uh, you know, why, what, what is so special about this place? As we were walking in, um, it was, you know, it's, it's gorgeous to me, but, you know, how did, how did you come to decide that this was worth um, Sycamore Land Trust's protection time? Well, uh, right now, you know, there's a lot of talk about the importance of wetlands, um, and, and that's been a, a conversation that's been going on for quite a while. And uh, so that's um, obviously protecting wetlands is, is not our only mission, but one of the things we do is protect important ecological areas. And um, we have for a long time focused a lot of effort on this Bean Blossom Creek watershed. And so this was one of the first... Um, pieces of property that we did get um, back in the early 90s. Um, uh, we started with a, a, a donation from Barbara Restel, which lives nearby, and she donated a parcel of this land to Sycamore Land Trust in kind of the early days of the land trust, and that really got the ball rolling. Um, that got us established in this area, um, and obviously wetlands are biological hotspots, and so there are a lot of threatened and endangered species that inhabit wetlands and in, in particular even at this preserve itself so that is what gets me excited about protecting this place and, and one of the reasons why I think um, Sycamore has put a lot of effort into to 
for res you know, protecting and restoring this area. Awesome. So, yeah, could you kind of describe what sort of habitat we're, we're standing in? Yeah, we're just in a, a, a native uh, bottomland hardwood forest type habitat. This particular section, as you can see, has kind of been overtaken uh, by a lot of red maple, but as we get further down in the boardwalk, you'll kind of see the more m mature forested area. As far as uh, um, when when Sycamore started taking care of this property, um, has it, like has it always looked like this? We're we're surrounded by you know oaks and um, flowing um, water that we just walked through, <laughs> and uh, um, what like what state was was this property in when when you first started to to take care of it? Yeah, that's a great question. Oh. You know, Rob and I were, weren't at Sycamore when they acquired this property, but, you know, we've looked at aerial photos and, and looked at, you know, pictures and different things to, to kind of get an idea of where it's been. And um, it's really changed dramatically in, in, in the, you know, 20-some years that we've had it. Um, a lot of it has just happened naturally, you know, just nature restoring itself. But, but there has been an effort from Sycamore, you know, with the help of volunteers and contractors to do some restoration work here. But this area that we're in right now is, as you can tell, is, is a fairly young forest, and, and there's pictures of when they built the original boardwalk that we're standing on that um, it was just a, kind of a wet field. You know, it was, obviously these areas were, were farmed at one time, cleared and farmed, and, and, and even not that long ago, you know, in, in the 80s, I believe they were still farming this mm -hmm. ground a lot of this ground and you'll see as we walk evidence of the drainage the ditches and so forth um, and so the trees have come in um, with the help of sycamore and contractors and planting a lot of them but then parts of this area were just naturally come in and the hydrology has changed a lot and in fact in my short time at sycamore I've seen the hydrology change thanks to our, our hardest working stewards the beavers here so they've They've made a big impact, and um, you know the water we walk through. I think is a lot a result of their efforts and continued to, to change the hydrology, which for us, you know, I know they can be a problem for certain people, but for us, we're, we're thankful to have them and to help change um, change it kind of back to the way it should be. You know, a, a place to kind of you know like this. The, the creeks are high, and so the water is being held here until it can be released and either get into the groundwater or, or kind of return to the creek when it, when the creeks go down and um, so it, it's to answer your question it, it's both it, it has changed and it's been both kind of a natural process and, a, and an assisted process yeah I think uh, as Chris said this was all a lot of this was just farm ground at, at one time we'll get to some sections uh, Further down on the boardwalk, you'll see some, as I s mentioned earlier, some like some old relic stands, some really nice uh, bottom and hardwood uh, forest trees. Um, but this is really an example of what just protecting the land can do, uh, giving it a little bit of an assist here and there, but just mostly just allowing the natural processes to come back and take precedence and uh, get things like the seasonal flood cycle. And let the beavers come in and do their work to kind of enhance the the wetland component and bring it bring it back to what it once was. Nice, yeah. Like standing here, it's hard to imagine um, 
actual farming implementation occurring because of the trees and the standing water. So it's uh, it's amazing to me to see these places that are like back to some some semblance of pre-agriculture. Yeah. And uh, so it's it's very just nice to be like standing here and uh, in we're in southern Indiana. Do you consider this southern Indiana or mid central? Southern Indiana. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, so my understanding of, of southern Indiana and agriculture is that it's a lot more challenging than where I'm from in northern Indiana. So um, this is one of the probably fewer available spots that was farmed. Right. Um, and so, yeah, the but that also means that there are fewer spots like this available right. to yeah. to be restored down here. Right. I've I've spent my whole life in southern, in, for the most part, in southern south eastern eastern Indiana, and so um, you're right. There 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 will be sections that are that are more conducive to agriculture, or flatter, and just make for better farm ground. But when you get into the rolling hills sections of of Indiana, it's it's it becomes a little more marginal for farming, and, but areas like this, the challenges are pretty obvious right now when you look at it. Um, but these these kind of floodplain areas can make some pretty good farm ground. Um, mm -hmm. But the issue with flooding is even when they put in the drain tiles and ditches can be a real problem. And um, and I think that's where land trusts can be really beneficial because y we can come in and take some marginal ground that, that maybe isn't very productive for farmers. Mm -hmm. um, and and we're, we're we're trying to to in many cases can partner with the farming community and take those areas out of production, uh, and and give the farmer a good return on that that ground and help restore it to nature, which then could maybe in a way reduce flooding to other areas that they farm, but also reduce flooding to other people as well by having a wetland that can store that flood water and and prevent it from causing problems downstream to our neighbors or even upstream because it, it backs things up, but. Um, but it is true the the farming uh, Indiana people that that don't travel the state if they only end up in one section don't realize the diversity of Indiana the habitats and then, and how that land is used it's it's quite a stark difference when you get in the southern half versus the northern half of the state oh yeah absolutely like just driving through from uh, north of Indy to to down here the the change in topography and suddenly you're in rolling hills and mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's it's really fascinating to just to see that, and then uh, noticing the different heights of the plants here from from up north. Here, and we're only like two two weeks behind you, and right. in springtime. But uh, right. Well, we have property all the way to Evansville, and so when Rob and I are on the road, especially in the spring and fall when it's most noticeable, and we have to go down to do work in one of these other preserves, where we're, we we often comment about how different it might be if you hit it just at that right time like in the fall you get further south and things will be greener when we're already getting fall colors or in the spring as you say the things will be greening up earlier down there and you know it's just it, it surprises me in one state how, how much it can vary you know seasonally and um, just geographically how the topography is so different and that impacts things so yeah I mean this being um, previously farmed land, um, what, aside from the, the hydrological changes, is, um, like, some of your biggest 
uh, challenges to the restoration and, and maintenance of, of this type of uh, habitat? One, I think the big one is just it's wet. It's hard. It's a hard place to work in, uh, and can be unpredictable in, in in that regard. And so anything that requires, you know, let's say like mechanical thinning, uh, uh, you know, you're at the, the dictate of the seasons and you know just the wetness at the time. So I think that's probably one of the the biggest factors. Yeah, um, for me, one of the things that I spent a lot of time on early on in my career here at Sycamore was this, the boardwalk we're standing on. Um, it was originally built in, I believe, two, started in 2005. Um, John Goleman was our past president that really spearheaded the idea to build a boardwalk through here, which, you know, you're talking about how, how it's hard to imagine it being farmed before, and, and that, that, that crossed my mind a lot to think, how did people come into there when this was all native and think this would be good farm ground? And just the work it had to take to drain it and clear it. It's like, the, the you know, I have an admiration for the, the drive and, and the spirit they had to, to do that. Um, I'm glad to see it restored now, but but you have to admire that, that work ethic. Mm -hmm. And then I also, when I started working on rebuilding this boardwalk, it was this section was all wooden at the time. I have no idea how John thought he could do that, you know, and he did it, and he did it almost with all volunteers, and, and they did it on weekends, and they built, you know, a mile and a half of wooden boardwalk through a swamp, you know, um, and it's just, I had to rebuild a big section of this because some of the wood was rotting, and, and we used this new, new surface that's really nice, but it was a big challenge. We had to do this all by hand in, in the swamp, you know, and in the muck wearing waders and uh, you, you couldn't get equipment in here and so to what rob was saying is it's a real it's it's a hard harsh environment you know it's beautiful and it's great but i've learned to to, to think about the animals that call this home and think they're tough you know to, to survive the, the elements out here you know it's brutally cold and icy and in the winter and then in the summer it's hot and hu super humid down here because of the water and the mosquitoes and the deer fly can be intense and anyone that's worked in, in a wetland knows that, that certain times of years it's it's brutal but other times it's it's wonderful and um i wouldn't trade it but i spent a year here and then we had um just to talk more about what what we have to do we had to maintain this is a lot of work you know you can see that you know we we're not even you know we're kind of getting towards the end of spring and it's still flooded and mm -hmm. so if we come out to do work you know we're, we're in the water in the muck um we had a tornado hit here just a month or so after we opened it yeah. and destroyed a big section of the brand new boardwalk and rob and i were out here in the middle of you know june and july clearing trees that were all tangled up on top of this boardwalk and water up to our knees you know and covered in you know mosquitoes and drenched in sweat and it's just a hard harsh environment but it also i don't know it i kind of thrive on it because it you feel like you, you earn your badge you know out here working in it and uh and then you you see things that you wouldn't see and that's what i think john's vision of creating this was really you know we think back and think gosh this is such a, a hard place to maintain but yet you just can't go see things like this everywhere mm -hmm. you know I mean, there are wetlands a lot of places, but actually get out a mile into it, you know, in the middle of it. And you can walk so quietly, 
that you kind of sneak up on things, you know, and you see things you wouldn't see. I, one of my best experiences out here was uh, uh, I saw I got up close to an American bitter, and I'd seen, mm-hmm. I'd heard it all all spring, and then I saw it fly off a few times. But one time I kind of came around the bend, and I was just walking on this, and it was pretty quiet, and it didn't, you know, fly off for once, and it just that sat there and just kind of stared at me, and it was just a really special moment for me, and really kind of solidified why this place is so important you know to have the boardwalk to allow people to kind of connect here and there's there's not many boardwalks that go that far into the wetland and uh, that to me is really a proud part of why we have this and but it lends itself to the challenges of of working here and doing our other restoration work you know tree plantings and invasive control and um you know just maintaining maintaining the public access Mm -hmm. it's 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 a constant challenge but but wor- a worthwhile challenge, you know. Yeah. Now I do want to comment on the just the quality of this boardwalk that we're standing on. This is uh, like people here, you know, swamp or wet woods, and uh, probably imagine that it's not very accessible. But uh, this is a a very accessible boardwalk, and it's it's just it looks great. So nice Thank nice you. job, and uh, and just making this available to to more people is, is pretty awesome yeah we've a lot of a lot of people made this happen you know a lot of funders and, and a lot of hard work from volunteers and staff and contractors and um and we it took a year to to rebuild this and it took the the original people i think two or three years because they did it mostly with volunteers and mm-hmm. and they had the hardest job because they had to kind of clear the the initial path um we came in and, and replaced it, and it was a lot of work. But um, it is it is a great asset for the community, and it, you know, and, and that's I think that's what's special about land trusts in general is we operate a little differently than other organizations. And that I mean, the other ones are great too, but I think our niche is that we're we can we can get these little pockets of places, uh, and sometimes grow them to quite large places, but we can protect places, and then if if it's suitable, we can provide access. You know. We can't provide access everywhere because it's just not, uh, you know, it's just not the right thing for that place. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe ecologically, it may be just the sensitivity of the surrounding landscape or whatever that might be. But um, but when you have a place like this and you're able to provide that, I think that's what's special. And you know, we don't charge. I mean, of course, we appreciate donations because this is such. This is a lot of work uh, to maintain, and it costs money to do that. But um, I don't know. We don't have crocodiles, but that was <laughs> awful loud. That was a big splash. Uh, I don't know what that was. <laughs> <laughs> My curiosity peaked up. Or swamp, swamp creature. Yeah, uh, just to kind of wrap up what Chris was saying, I think one of there aren't many places like this in southern Indiana where you can have this type of experience mm-hmm. in a wetland area, uh, and. Uh, this is by far kind of our flagship preserve as far as public access goes, and you know it, it takes a lot of work to some to uh, I'd say most of our work that we do at this preserve is related to maintaining the public access component. Okay. Well, would you all like to wander down sure. the? Yeah, the best parts are still to come. Cool. Maybe we'll see whatever is lurking over there. Yeah. <laughs> that was loud. I mean, it could have just been that. 
bullfrog going after something. Mm -hmm. make a big splash. We have a video of, um, you know, we have some trail cam videos, uh, trail cameras up, you know, taking pictures and videos. And um, we have multiple videos of bobcats <coughs> here, which <coughs> isn't that unusual now. You know, they're becoming more populated, especially in the southern part of the state. But the cool thing is they actually like to walk on the bo boardwalk, <laughs> which is, and, and that just makes sense. It's like an easier way for them to get around the wetland as well. And um, so it's kind of fun to see them walking here at night as well. Human and wildlife corridor. Yeah, right. The raccoons certainly love it. Oh, I bet. And right near here, I don't know if we'll see it, um, but uh, we have an eagle's nest just kind of off to the left there. Um, with now that the leaves are out, it's kind of hard to mm. to see it. Uh, we might have a better angle when we get a little further down the trail, but. Uh, that actually, uh, it's, it's a long story, and I don't know the full one, so I don't want to misspeak, but the eagle nesting in this area was kind of a part of the initial donation, mm. was just wanting to protect this area and concern about it being developed and knowing that there were eagles in the area. And, you know, in the 90s, eagles were a lot less common mm -hmm. to see, and some of the initial reintroductions in Indiana were at Lake Monroe, so not far from here. And... Um, Within, I think very shortly after getting this property, an eagle started nesting here, and we've had eagles nesting here since then. Um, and and for some reason, this is kind of like Tornado Alley in this area, and it, okay. the eagle's nest has been hit, I think, three times since yeah. it's been here. And they've re-nested every time in, in, in an area that we can usually see from the boardwalk, which is really nice because people get excited about that. And there is a nest out there. You have to take my word for it right now, but uh, and it does have some young oh, uh, awesome. eagles on it. Um, the, the, I saw the adults on it earlier and some people have reported seeing some uh, young nestlings in the nest. Um, so hopefully we'll get a, a look at the nest or at least the adults flying around. So uh, We have eagles nesting on multiple properties and I, I, I never get tired of seeing them and I, that's still a species that I'm, I'm proud to, to see us help protect, you know, habitat that's important for them. We have, a, you know, you hear and see barred owls here quite often. Um, you know, when we were working out here rebuilding the boardwalk, we'd hear them almost daily. And if you were here till dark, which we were many times, uh, you would see them. And, and a lot of people come out here uh, in the evening and will report seeing those, which a, a common species, but still. Um, still pretty cool to see. Cool to see and um, just to see the diversity obviously is one of the things that excites me and wetlands are known to have a lot of diversity and in a time when I think that could be a one of our focuses is protecting lands and manage them so that we can increase the biodiversity you know to help buffer against the changes that we that the landscape is facing yeah well that feather you picked up on the way on the walk out here was a barred owl wasn't it yes yep and and they and they they tend to hunt that area there's a you know, we're talking about ditches and how it was farmed, and there's a little ditch along that lane. Um, and I've watched the barred owls in the evening, actually. I didn't realize they enjoyed fishing as much as they do, but um, they'll go after, you know, frogs and other things in these little shallow areas. Um, so I think that's why they kind of like this area. Yeah. Plus, it's a large block of protected lands. So this... Uh, 
preserve is over 600 acres and in the entire what we call like the the bean blossom bottoms conservation area uh, that's over 1600 acres wow. and so one of our goals one of our primary goals at Sycamore in terms of land acquisitions is to try to connect all of these parcels together uh, so we've got 600 acres here uh, go downstream a little bit uh, there's another block of uh, several hundred and then further downstream there's another block of uh, oh 100 plus and then we just last year acquired the a property that's the confluence of Bean Blossom Creek and the White River so kind Very of like cool. a keystone piece but I think Sycamore's hallmark has been to uh, just progressively add on to these parcels and connect them uh, so we're kind of trying to create as large of a protected area as possible. Uh, hopefully we're going to get a few more parcels this year actually that will allow us to connect uh, our shine and fixed stoltling preserves crossing mm. my fingers that that works out but uh, it's going to really add to the overall connectivity. Yeah, and that's so important for so many reasons. Yeah, I think this is, uh, you know, kind of back to the the restoration part of this that we were talking about. I think one of the things that this preserve is a, an example of is just allowing the natural processes, you know, to kind of the room that they need to to work. And a lot of what you see is just allowing those natural natural processes to come over and kind of take over the land, predominantly the seasonal flooding mm -hmm. uh, in this area. So. Uh, it's amazing what can happen when you just let nature take its course. Yeah. So looking around, um, and me being more of a northern person, um, I am not perceiving, you know, invasive problems from this view. What kind of, um, what am I missing? Or is this just that pristine here? Um, no, um, we're, we're a little lucky, I, I would say, in that uh, good sections of this preserve don't have a lot of invasive pressure. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's not that, that we haven't done some work on that, but um, you, you get, we have preserves where invasives are just everywhere, you know, and, and this preserve prior to protection was disturbed. And so you, in those disturbed environments, you tend to get a lot of invasives. Um, but we don't have a lot in, in certain sections. Now, we, we have done a lot of work in some areas. We had a, a large area of reed canary grass that was a big problem. Uh, and, you know, and it likes these wetland environments. And dealing with invasives in wetlands uh, is, is challenging. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we did do a large project with Ecologic that they did a really good job in removing that. And then we went in. And once we got that that kind of taken care of, we went in and did a large tree planting. Um, this section, though, that we're in has not had uh, a large problem. You know, we've got pockets of invasives, multiple rows, and some of the woody invasives that you, you do find. But um, And out along the road where there's more edge habitat, you know, we'll find invasives that, that we have to, to deal with. And they're a little easier to get to when they're near the road. Um, and we have a lot of volunteers that that kind of patrol the watershed and and do some you know invasive work to help us. You know, 
you know, our stewardship staff is small and still uh, kind of new, and so we rely heavily on volunteers to help us when we have as much ground as we have to maintain. How many uh, acres does uh, Sycamore Land Trust? Um, oh, yeah, I'm just <laughs> looking at all the. That looks. I haven't noticed that before. Some of it yeah, looks this pretty is real recent. new. You can see right there. Um, yeah. We. The funny thing here, uh, what we're looking at right now is a, a bunch of trees cut by beavers, uh, some very recently, and all within the last few months or so, um, this year at the least. Um, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the beavers changing hydrology, and um, but this area that we're looking at now is kind of semi-open, but it's growing quickly with, you know, a not a extremely diverse tree planting. It's just those trees that are early colonizers that blow in easily. So we have some ash and some maple and so forth. And, you know, we, we kind of like to have a little more diversity than this. And we're looking at doing some habitat management in this area and the beavers beat us to it. So uh, they're, they're clearing a lot of trees and creating an opening. And we'd like to keep this area open because this is an area where we do see species that like these kind of more marshy environments like American bittern or Virginia rail was see, uh, seen here this spring, another state endangered species. So, you know, not that we only focus on protecting those rare and endangered species, but they certainly catch our attention and w that we want to kind of consider in our management plans. And um, But this is really cool. And, and, it, and the nice thing, again, about the boardwalk is it allows people to get close. I mean, beavers are hard to see. They're you know, you're not likely to see them unless you're out here in the evening or in the early morning, but um, they, they can at least see that work in mm -hmm. process. And, and again, it's just that natural environment coming back, and I, it encourages me to see this. Yeah, no, this is, they are, they are certainly busy here, and, uh, <laughs> and that has to, I mean, just knowing that you can work hand in hand with like wildlife like that mm -hmm. sort of and just like let them do do the work that you need done right. and it's great they are much better at restoring hydrology than people you know i mean they just they know how to do it you know and we we can remove ditches or plug ditches or break tile and all that but you know this the beavers are the ones that can really do it i, I this past winter, I read a really a great book about beavers and kind of their history in the country and how they really shape the land in more ways than we, we really realize. And in the more areas that I'm in, you know, when I grew up, you just didn't hear about beavers. You didn't see them. And, and it's one of those success stories that you don't talk about as much because we didn't have much to do with it other than we just kind of let them be and they kind of took off. And, mm -hmm. um, I know they do create some problems in areas, even in some wild, in some like conservation areas where they do a little too much flooding in areas that they just can't take it. But um, for us, uh, and it did make <laughs> it did make it really challenging rebuilding this boardwalk because mm -hmm. uh, it ended up being a really wet year, and their dams kept the water from from you know going down. And we even went in and mechanically removed a few just so that we could get the water to go down and they mm -hmm. would rebuild them so fast that it didn't make a difference <laughs> at all and um, so we finally just said just leave them be and we'll just have to wear waders and deal with it and because um, yeah. we want them here and we're glad they're here and, and they're, they must be you know the families must be growing and more and, and more expanding because they're, we're starting to see them working in areas that, that I hadn't seen it before mm -hmm. and um, so that's encouraging to me and it's just going to change this it's going to change this preserve um, 
and by by changing the hydrology and then we've already seen in areas trees dying that mm -hmm. are just because they can't withstand the flooding mm -hmm. um, and then other plants are coming in that can stand it so it's kind of nice we have a lot of button bush here as, as you might have seen mm -hmm. and that's uh, a really great plant um, for wetlands and really great plant for pollinators people might not know that unless they they know a little bit about the plant but uh, and just again increasing the diversity of habitat and yeah, and then all the more impetus to expand the, the the footprint of this preserve, so beavers have even more more room to right. do their work, right? Right. Rob <laughs> mentioned connectivity and and creating like these corridors, um, and, and and that's important for wildlife to move and give these beavers a chance to move into areas where they're welcomed, you know, and, and not a problem. Mm -hmm. um, but also, one of the species we have here that I'm really interested in right now is um, the Kirtland snake. It's a state-endangered mm -hmm. species. Um, not many people know about it. It's because it's, 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 it's so secretive. It mm -hmm. lives most of its ground life underground. It's very fossorial, and it's, uh, and it's probably even nocturnal. It's not a snake that you see basking very often. It likes to be hidden it's pretty small, you know, it's like smaller than a garter snake typically, um, but it is state endangered um, and it's very common here if hmm. you know where to look and fi can find it. And But it depends on certain types of habitat and s even here we have varying types of habitat and uh, so we want to kind of make sure it has a home, but one of the concerns with these small, you know, spe these species of small populations is, you know, genetic isolation and these pockets that that aren't connected to other pockets so creating that connectivity can allow these species to migrate and move you know and, and maybe increase the the gene pool and because uh, we are we're doing some research with DNR right now at the shine preserve that Rob mentioned and uh, that's a preserve we have a lot of restoration and plan for the future and uh, we're doing some kind of baseline studies and we're finding some Kirtland snakes there already so mm -hmm. the idea of being able to connect that population which might not currently be able to to connect with this population uh, is very exciting to me you mm -hmm. know to think that that might help that species uh, expand and grow and, and maybe become you know healthier by creating more diversity and within its gene pool is pretty pretty special um, yeah that's that's great <laughs> So, when just on the on the topic of species, uh, what I, this is this is gonna show my my ignorance here, but what is the the bean blossom namesake for this preserve? That's uh, the bean blossom is the name of the creek okay. that runs right. uh, uh, through this this valley, uh, and so that's what the preserve is named after. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I don't I don't know what what bean. Yeah, and I don't <laughs> and I don't know where that name came from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the bean blossom starts over in, uh, gosh, Brown County for sure. We actually have some properties along Bean Blossom Creek in Brown County to the east of us here, uh, that flows all the way through uh, Monroe County to the White River. So, should we head on down the trail? Sure. The boardwalk. You want to go up to the observation? Oh sure, questions? yeah. And you all picked a great day. There, like, I haven't seen a single mosquito. <laughs> right. I imagine they're coming though. <laughs> yeah. I think the little breeze today has helped keeping them away. Yeah, I, I find it 
you know, after as much time as I spent doing the boardwalk, I was, I thought for sure when I started that project, I would be eaten alive by mosquitoes a lot of days. But it really was, it was less frequent than I thought. Uh, the deer fly were probably more of an issue. Um, and I really think, I mean, and this may be just me wanting to, to, uh, to, to, to support why we protect places like this, but the areas that I found the most mosquitoes were like on the edges where there were like roads and driveways and things like that where there were ditches and it and it seemed like those areas were maybe less natural but mm -hmm. when I was back here in in the heart of the the wetland um, I found less mosquitoes but I also the dragonflies were mm -hmm. intense you know they were just everywhere and they would actually f follow us around <laughs> as we were working and I think they were you know somewhat protecting I like to think that they were protecting me but um, yeah. I think that you, you just you, the more the diversity you have, the more things are a little more balanced. So mm -hmm. I mean, the mosquitoes were still there, but they just weren't like on you instantly as soon as you open the door of your vehicle and you just recovered, um, which was ha would happen often in the parking lot, and you just dreaded going into work. But once we got out here and started working, it was better. And like Rob said, there in some of these areas there is usually a nice breeze, and that obviously helps as well. Um, mm -hmm. In other areas where you're really surrounded, there's one section of the boardwalk where it will be bad and it's mm -hmm. just it's really thick woods no no air a lot of really shallow stagnant water no fish there's you find in some of these areas we, we do have quite a bit of fish even though the water is really shallow because we get frequent flooding from the creek mm -hmm. and so you'll find little mosquito fish and just other small minnows of some sort uh we'll even see a larger fish we've seen bow fish bowfin in here and um uh, uh grass pickerel some other mm -hmm. like larger species of fish but still kind of on the small side but uh so i think that helps with the mosquito population they're they're eating some of those larvae and stuff but when we get into this if we walk the full trail we'll get in kind of the wet wood section rob was talking about the more mature section and uh it can get pretty pretty intense with the mosquitoes and i just think there's less it's less competition you know less predators in there to kind of control those populations but yeah. good at least they, they have their, their reservoirs that their population can maintain <laughs> so that all the dragonflies and everybody else right. can, can sustain. And right. Yeah. So it's important. Well, they're, they're a part of the ecosystem, <laughs> exactly. you know, and, and you know, as, mu as much as they can cause a lot of problems, uh, and not to dismiss some of the, the real health concerns mm. they can bring, but um, they're part of the ecosystem. And, and without the mosquitoes, uh, we would lose a lot of bird species, you know, right. that are dependent on them, and a lot of insect species. So uh, I... I I can complain about them just like everybody, but I try to understand that's part of the, the nature of this work. For one, Rob mm -hmm. and I are dealing with uh, ticks. You know, we were talked about that before we started mm -hmm. today, and ticks are a real issue. Not not so much here at this wetland, but at our other preserves. And anyone that works in the field now, that's that's a real concern and a real issue, mm -hmm. especially with the increase in you know, tick-borne diseases. But um, again, it is also part of the environment and. Um, we just have to learn how to, to, to function and work in it safely. But, right. um, and it's not always pleasant. You know, people think, people that don't do my work often you know, give me a hard time about, oh, it must be nice getting paid to, to watch birds or <laughs> play with trees and stuff. You know, it's, it's such a great job. And I'm like, it is. And I'm not saying it's not, but it isn't all sunshine and roses. You know, you, yes. you come work a few times in, in the heat of the summer or in the middle of winter, and you might, you might like being in an office sometimes. So. <laughs> But overall, it is great. I wouldn't trade it. And, you know, obviously we do this because we care about it. Mm -hmm. you, you, do, you, you don't do this kind of work, you know, 
to get rich or to get your name on the billboard, you do it because you care about the mission and the purpose of it. Right. So you just you take your lumps, you know, mm-hmm. where you have to. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes more lumps than others, depending <laughs> right. on what you run into. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, but when I before we got distracted by the 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 beaver work back <laughs> there, I wanted to ask, uh, um, how many acres does Sycamore yeah. care for? So we have we have over ten thousand acres. Uh, we have we have quite a bit of land. There are some properties out there that we just we don't have the time or the capacity to kind of care for, or manage the way that we would like. So those properties are protected mm-hmm. and always will be, but we we don't have the resources to you know give them that push that mm-hmm. we were talking about early in terms of s- stewardship and ecological restoration. Uh, so we really try to focus those efforts on our, our priority preserves and uh, it's a little bit of a moving target sometimes what is a priority but it's it's preserves that are have a you know significant sort of natural feature or ecological significance or uh, notable because of their public access mm-hmm. there's something that we really want uh, the public to get to understand and see what you know what is a, a really high quality natural area in southern Indiana. Yeah, no, 10,000 acres is, you know, you're just looking at birds, right? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we also, uh, you know, we protect land by holding conservation easements. Mm-hmm. And uh, as of now, we don't do any uh, active stewardship on the conservation easements. Mm-hmm. We might sort of help guide landowners mm-hmm. uh, on resources that are available uh, to them to you know, to do invasive work and so forth. And when we, when we do annual monitoring, we'll pull the, the random burning bush that we come across and so forth. Uh, but we don't do any active stewardship on our conservation easements other than just monitoring for violations and mm-hmm. so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and just to echo what Rob says, I think he said it well, but that, you know, one of the the issue, you know, people will, you know, will bring to our attention. And we we we're grateful for that. That certain invasives are here and there, and um, and we try to get to those, especially if they bring up something new that we we don't want to let spread. But we would love to to have all 10,000 acres, you know, pristine, mm-hmm. you know, and and restored ecologically and then free of invasives. But the reality is, it's just not possible. You mm-hmm. know, even if we had more staff, you know, it just the 10,000 acres spread over, you know, all of South Central Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even if it was 10,000 in one block, that would be impossible. But 10,000 spread over 100 places. Mm-hmm. It's even more, more edges and more issues and more drive time. And so we have to prioritize. You know, not even just in which preserve, but what is, what can we do on that preserve? Even, you know, we have preserves that that are, are full of invasives that are a priority for us. But mm-hmm. there's just no way. So we then we have to kind of start thinking about, you know, what is driving the protection of that property you know and if there is an invasive there that isn't threatening our priority you know tnc has a great model for that because i've talked to some other land stewards at other land trusts you know tnc dnr you know because i feel overwhelmed at times Mm -hmm. you know it's like you go to preserve it it, it's hard to people that walk with me now in the spring get frustrated because it's like I just stop and pulling garlic mustard you know even if it's not on our property you know it's just like there it is you just got to get it mm-hmm. and they're like just look at the flowers and I'm like but there's a garlic mustard right next to it and if I leave it then there's going to be no flowers but 
So I think Leopold said something about that, you know, about restoration. Once you kind of learn to see the problems, it's hard to, to, to not see the problems all the time and mm -hmm. want to do something about it. And it, it makes, it drives you crazy. Mm -hmm. um, um, he said it much better than I can, <laughs> but uh, we just have to kind of find that, what are we trying to protect? And, and then what is impacting that? You know, what can we do to, to protect what we're trying to protect? You know, yeah. and sometimes you, you have to just, you can't, you can't turn a blind eye, but sometimes you have to kind of say, okay, that isn't a priority for us because mm -hmm. it's not impacting what we're trying to protect. Um, if, if the world, it was a perfect world, we get, we'd take care of it. Yeah. If we had the funding and the resources, the people, the capacity, we would do it. But you can't, you just can't. It's just the reality of it. Um, and the invasive issue is, can be a really depressing issue mm -hmm. and it's not going away. It's just getting worse, unfortunately, not to be a, a defeatist, but uh, it's fun. I mean, I spent all, Rob and I spent the other day, you know, we a truckload of garlic mustard by the end of the day, you mm -hmm. know, literally a truckload. And then yesterday I spent all day pulling other invasives and getting rid of invasive woodies. And it's it has a satisfying side of it, but it's just a never ending battle. You know, you don't, you, you can win the war in certain, you know, win some battles, but to win the war is really hard. And, um, but just keeping that, trying to remind yourself of what you're trying to do, what you're trying to protect, and, and do your best to do that, I think is, is what drives us. Um, um, it, it's, it's, it's a constant conversation that we're having, you mm -hmm. know, in, in, as, as staff, Rob and I have these conversations all the times about, you know, where do we prioritize our time and how do we do that best? But it's, uh, there's not a, there's not always a, a, a right answer. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, they talk about practicing medicine. You know, I, I think of conservation <laughs> the same way. It's, you're practicing, you know, you're, you're getting it wrong sometimes. And, and science is not like people think it's black and white. It's mm -hmm. not at all, especially when we talk about natural science and things. Uh, there's a lot we don't know. And then we find out 20 years later that we were doing the completely wrong thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope that um, 20 years from now, I don't find out that I was doing the wrong thing. And that's why I ask a lot of questions because mm -hmm. I'm no expert. And uh, I try to learn from people that are more experienced and more knowledgeable and just yeah. plain smarter than me. And, yeah. and, mm -hmm. and it's, it, I'm constantly learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. R one of the, I think for me, one of the things that's, you just kind of have to accept is in ecological restoration is you really are at the whim of natural cycles you know, and, and natural disturbances and occurrences. And Last year when we were working on stilt grass uh, at our Downey Hill Preserve in, in Brown County, we went to an area that we had treated the year before. Uh, it was a kind of a bottomland creek area that will have seasonal flooding and it was just super thick and we had treated that exact area the year before and uh, you could tell that it just the seeds came in via the flooding mm -hmm. and uh, so last year we had to make the decision that we were just we just kind of gave up on that area mm -hmm. uh, and focused most of our efforts on the upland areas surrounding it trying to really push back where those seeds were coming from that eventually made their way into the creek so uh, it's an example of just how a, a natural cycle a flood event kind of you know, may have just uh, made all of the prior year's effort kind of worthless or meaningless, but mm -hmm. responding to that and trying to strategize and prioritize. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, those unknown unknowns and trying to plan for them. 
right? <laughs> uh, yeah, Chris, you were just talking about the unknowns. Unknowns, <laughs> I think yesterday or the day before. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's, you know, it, I think being strategic is, is the key, and I think that's something we're, we're doing a better job at. Right. Yeah, no, limited resources are, mm-hmm. are literally the name of the game. And uh, from where from where we're standing, it looks like you're doing a great job. Thank you. So. Yeah, yeah. We try, but nature does a lot of it. And, and you know, and I don't want to sound like we're the only people that face these challenges as far as, like, limited resources and funds. I was just on a call yesterday with a, a bunch of people. We were talking about prescribed fire and... Um, and it, you know, it was, it was that was the central theme for everybody. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges, you know, from the federal level to the state, down to the nonprofits and private companies, all of them faced the same thing. And it was like, not enough staff, not enough funding, too much work to do. And you know, and and I think where it gets frustrating for people like us, I mean, I, I'm sure it's for everybody, but just there's just a real passion in this kind of work, you know. And then when you see a need. And you can't address it because it's and then you know other people see that need too, and they wonder why aren't you addressing it? And it's just because you just can't, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I I hate that word, but you just have to be able to at some point realize you can only do so much. And mm-hmm. and it's it's hard for me to to convince myself of that, but it's just the reality of the situation. So you you try to do the best you can with what you have, you mm-hmm. know. And it's just I mean it's a good life lesson, but it's a t- tough one to learn. Um, yeah. But on a day like today, when we get to kind of come with somebody like you and talk about what we're doing here, it, it's it's kind of re-inspires us to to think, okay, we're doing we're doing good work, you mm-hmm. know, and um, and a lot of people are, and that's why I, I think what you're doing is really great because I got to Rob and I listen to some of your other podcasts, so we get to hear what these other people are doing, and that's inspiring to us too. Say, hey, that's a great project, you know, we could do something like that, or it's nice to know somebody's doing something like that somewhere else because. We got enough to do here, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we we can't save all of Indiana. We're we're gonna try to save our little patch of land here and uh, and keep growing that and hoping that that spurs someone else to do something. And, and there's a lot of people doing great work. And yeah. I think it's uh, it's underrepresented the, the great work people do on these on these smaller scale levels. Um, we like to think big, but you know, in the scheme of things, it's still small. It's not like you know, mm-hmm. we're not talking like you know, hundreds of thousands of acres. But for us, these it, it is like a hundred thousand acres here, you know. So, yeah, and that's one thing. The the, the stewardship component is something that, uh, you know, my in, in my job as land preservation director, I'm really trying to anticipate when we look at potential properties uh, to take on is what are what is are going to be the required stewardship inputs needed, you know, to take care of that piece of property the way that we want to, mm-hmm. and unfortunately. Uh, I'm, I'm, we have a lot of folks who want to donate land to Sycamore to be protected and unfortunately I've, I've had to say no sometimes just mm-hmm. because it was something that uh, we just don't have the resources to take on mm-hmm. and uh, it's, it's hard to say no because you want to try to protect every piece of property that you can uh, and you also want to try to work with owners who want to see their property protected but uh, if it's a situation that you know will have a lot of costs for sycamore and require just you know too much work beyond what we can currently maintain it's you know we, d- we have to be 
more cautious in, in the properties that we take on now and, and really again being focusing more on kind of those high priority areas mm -hmm. and, and sort of fulfilling our goals of adding on to our existing preserve to create those bigger blocks of protected areas and connectivity and sort of high quality natural areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean that totally makes sense. Just uh, do do what you can. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So I feel like you you both kind of alluded to this, but I mean just this is difficult work. You have difficult decisions to make. You have like mosquitoes and sun and humidity. Southern Indiana, I mean, arguably possibly more humid than where I am from, but you know, <laughs> depends on who you ask. Uh, why? Like, how did you get here? What What led you to this being what you what you spend your time doing? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, for me, it's been. Uh, um, I think it, it it's it's been a not a clear path you know it's it's kind of zigzagged you know and not a straight line to get here for sure um it just started as a, as a child just always having an interest in the outdoors you know and i was fortunate enough to grow up in a time when you, you know there wasn't a lot of other distractions so when summer came it was like go outside and play mm -hmm. and it, it wasn't really even uh an option it was kind of like moms were like go outside and play <laughs> for a while okay and get outside and it was like I, you didn't have to tell me twice because like sure that and and you could just go play wherever you wanted to play you know and, and the neighbors didn't care if you're on their you know there was no boundaries and property lines per se you know we just where I grew up in the time of you know our kind of the time in our culture you just roamed the fields and woods and the creeks and you just played and and then um, and then that just grew into to doing more recreational things you know fishing and things like that with my friends and my dad and um, eventually I developed a love for birds, you know, and bird watching, and um, one of my professors here at IU, Dr. Whitehead, who's passed away, um, was a great influence on me as far as teaching me, you know, about birds, but also kind of conservation and seeing that there was a way to kind of make that a career, you know, I was kind of pre-internet, so it wasn't as much available online to see uh, what was all out there, and um, but that kind of gave me a, a, a passion, but it still took me a while to find that, and I've done a lot of different things before I ended up here, and I'm, I'm not a land steward, and I'm trying to learn to be one, um, and I just saw this as a really great opportunity and a great challenge for me, because um, I'm kind of more of a biologist, but mm. I wanted, I knew that the, the, the animals I, I was interested in, I've always had a passion for animals, you know, as a kid I just wanted to be a veterinarian, but I kind of wanted the outdoors, so trying to find a way to parlay those two things, and then this, you know, protecting habitat kind of does all those things, it protects the animals, and so that's kind of the, it's been a long winding path to get me here, but I ended up here, and ironically it's funny, my brother ended up in the same field in a completely different path than me, um, but it's just, I think it stems back to our childhood, um, just being outdoors and playing and, you know, and just having this real connection to the land. Yeah, so, so for me, I grew up in Bloomington, so this, this is the area that's, you know, closest to my heart, mm -hmm. uh, but in, you know, in high school, I wanted to move out west, I went to college out west, and got my degree out west at a small school called Prescott College, and, uh, studied a lot of conservation biology, wildlife management, my degrees in ecology. And uh, while studying out there, you know, one of the 
one of the, you might say, things the western states and landscape has going for it is they have gigantic protected areas. Mm -hmm. You know, now there may be, you know, multiple use on it, such as foresting, you know, uh, logging and grazing and so forth, but the areas are more or less protected. And back in the in the Midwest and the East, you know, we don't have those areas because of the, the, the uh, ratio of private land to public land and mm -hmm. so forth. Uh, our blocks of protected landscape are, are not nearly as big. And so uh, I was kind of interested in this by trying to work towards, you know, enhancing uh, protected land, the acreage of protected land and, and uh, public natural areas uh, in the, the Midwest, in Indiana, uh, just so we, you know, we, we have that as, as a resource, as something that uh, is in, in the, the, you might say, the public realm or the realm of, you know, the overall conservation in, in this part of the uh, part of the country uh, so for me it's the opportunity to just acquire land work towards land acquisitions and, and see it protected is, is the main uh, thing that that drew me here to the position I'm in now okay. awesome well, thank you both for doing the things that you're doing I'm glad to do you want to keep walking, or would you? Can are you? you how are you on time? What do you oh, I'm fine on time. Okay. Yeah, I think I think there's a couple of other cool areas you might want to see if yeah. you've got time. Sure. Yeah. This is one of the ditches oh. that was existing, you know, to kind of drain this land historically. Uh -huh. uh, so there's always usually a fair amount of water in here, but it just runs this way and then that way. I think we kind of cross it going back, don't we, Chris? But mm -hmm. it's not quite as not as deep, not as deep in that section. Mm -hmm. yeah, so just a. Uh, combination of, of the work you mentioned earlier with the breaking tiles and then letting the beavers do their thing was enough to let this flow over or keep, keep things wet. I can't imagine, yeah, just how how hard it must have been to farm this area. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Um, right. The, the dit this ditch is, is holding water also. Um, obviously, we've had enough water to, to fill up a lot of the wetland, but the beavers, this this never goes dry anymore, mm. um, and it used to dry up from what we've been told. Um, historically, this would, you know, in the summer when we haven't had rains, this ditch would eventually dry up. I mean, it might still be muddy, but it wouldn't have a lot of standing water, but there are at least, from this bridge downstream, at least five dams, beaver dams, mm. between here and where this kind of empty, this ditch empties into a creek. Okay. Um, and, oh, there's prothonotary yeah. water. Oh, cool. And it has uh, got a little uh, dragonfly or mayfly. Here, it's going to feed. <gasps> oh, nice. It's his mate, maybe. So this, so is, cool. this is 
one of the best places to see the Pythonotary at this preserve is this particular stretch. Yeah. Probably my favorite warbler, so it's cool that it's here. But yeah, there's so the beavers use this actually if you look over the side of the, the bridge here, they're they're eating my bridge. So oh, uh, <laughs> oh so no. So uh, hopefully they get tired of that and go to some easier trees to chew on. But yeah, the beavers use this as 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 kind of their their highways and probably store food in here and get access to other food. Um, but you know, the ditch is is nice. It makes you know maintenance work that we have to do sometimes a challenge, but it, it does provide a good. You know, I, a week or so ago I was out here checking on the boardwalk and you know there were two. Uh, families of geese, you know, with goslings mm -hmm. swimming in the in the in this ditch here. Um, you know, and I, you know, it's a common species that a lot of people probably there's probably a lot of people that don't really care to see geese, but it's it's cool to see them in their natural environment. It mm -hmm. really, sh it I sat here for a while and watched them, and it's like you know I've seen geese all my life, and oftentimes <laughs> just kind of dismiss them. But when you watch them kind of in nature with their family yeah. swimming through the trees, and they're just quieter, they're just they're like people when they get into nature. They're just calmer, you know, mm -hmm. and they're just—it just seems more natural. And it was—it was quite, quite a nice experience to watch them. Um, but this is a—you know—you'll see families of wood ducks out here a lot. Mm -hmm. We have quite a few wood ducks here, that, um, and uh, you know, there's a lot of different species. But this area has water pretty much year-round now, mm -hmm. thanks to the beavers, and so that again creates another a, a, a mini open water habitat inside mm -hmm. our wetland. So a lot more diversity because of that. Yeah. Now this is this is pretty cool. This is kind of a like because restoration is not necessarily returning back to, you know, what it was prior to the human disturbance, but just being able to incorporate what the changes that were mm -hmm. done mm -hmm. into into the new natural mm -hmm. and that's right. uh, mm -hmm. so this is this is a really neat example of that. Right. Yeah, it, I think it's kind of cool. I, I, I like when we when we walk in a property, I like kind of trying to do a little, uh, there's a g guy out east that calls it forest forensics, you mm -hmm. know, kind of trying to figure out what happened to the land, mm -hmm. which I think is important as a steward to try to, to know maybe what the land was before, what happened to it, and then now kind of what we want to do with it. Um, but I think it's, it's nice for people, you know, uh, as an educational thing, okay, this, no, this is a, this was this is not natural. Look how straight it is, and mm -hmm. you look over here, and there's like a mound. So they they dug mm -hmm. the ditch, put the dirt right next mm -hmm. to it. Um, but now it's become semi-natural, mm -hmm. you know, thanks to mostly mostly the beavers did this part of it. They just plugged it up in multiple places, and then water. Re and now vegetation is growing, and eventually this will probably get some sinuosity to it. You know, eventually it w won't be maintained as a ditch anymore, and eventually the water will start to create its own flow mm -hmm. and but for now I think it's kind of neat to see it uh, it reminds us of the past mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you can see how it's changing mm -hmm. yeah. um, and and the animals are using it you know they, they've adapted to it and they're, they're making they're making use of it as habitat and uh, you can see that the ver there's a, as Rob said this is a good spot for pythonotaries so you have a lot of dead standing trees and um, lots yeah. of water and yeah, and and just uh, to note for since this is audio that prothonotary warbler literally lit 
15 feet from us. <laughs> like, so <laughs> when you say a good spot to see them, right. it's like right there. <laughs> right there. And they're, I don't, I don't know what it is about them, but they see, I don't know if they're just so, so happy to be here, but they're just, they, you get a lot of really close looks at them. You know, yeah. I think it is, again, the boardwalk gives you that opportunity to kind of get out there yep. without making a lot of noise. And I mean, we're talking, so they weren't too concerned about us anyway, but um, it does really get you close to nature. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, up here, uh, you'll, you're gonna you're gonna see something again because it's audio, so to, to let your listeners know. Um, you know, we just we were kind of in an open area, and then we walked through another young forest, and we just crossed that ditch, and it, it, you're starting to see a lot more sky again. Um, and it's not because we're coming into a natural opening. This is where the tornado damage starts. Mm. If you're here, it's very stark and, and obvious, and you'll start to see the twisted trees and cut off sections that we had to clear. Um, and this is also a section that, because of the beavers, again, holds a lot of water most of the year, uh, unless it gets really, really dry. Um, and so uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how this area responds. Um, we're not going to be able to do a lot of work, other than if we get some invasives, we'll have to find a way to control them. But um, now that we have all this light coming in, and it's... Uh, uh, and it's it's all really wet environment. I'm just curious to, uh, what we're gonna get. Um, hopefully, we get a lot more of this blue flag iris that's blooming here. That's beautiful, and mm -hmm. uh, I think it will like it. But um, uh, it's an interesting area, and um, one species that we have here that's it's a really uh, something we're really excited about is a, a relatively newly discovered species, um, and one of the few places that's so far been documented in Indiana is called the cypress firefly. Oh, uh, cool. It's a unique species of firefly that was discovered not too many years ago in Mississippi, I think it was, down in the south. Um, and was just named then by the, the lady that discovered it from Tennessee, Lynn Faust, and she's written a book on fireflies, so she's kind of an expert on it. And uh, they just, her and uh, Max, uh, a friend of hers from uh, here in Indiana, came out here to, to look for them and found them here. Um, and it's one of the only places so far they found them that doesn't have cypress trees and never never did historically to our knowledge. So, mm. And it's named the cypress firefly because it's usually associated with cypress swamps. Mm -hmm. um, and it just has, I've seen it uh, luckily a few times myself and it's, uh, I, I enjoy watching, I, I call them lightning bugs. That's mm -hmm. when I grew up, they were lightning bugs. And yeah. <laughs> I asked her about that. She's like, it, it can be either. It's just kind of a regional thing. Uh, most scientific things call them fireflies, but uh, they're lightning bugs to me. <laughs> and uh, they just have a different flash, mm -hmm. call them flash train, different pattern of flashing. Mm -hmm. It's really neat. It's really cool. Um, the preserve is closed at night, so, uh, you know, if people want to come see them, they'd have to have, like, permission from us and probably have somebody show them. But... Um, uh, it's just neat to know that we're protecting this that, that hasn't been... I haven't seen it anywhere else, and now that I know what I'm looking for, I've been looking. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, they've found them. They're starting to find them in more places because there's not many people that are experts on you know, fireflies' mm -hmm. flash patterns. But um, it's clearly a wetland species. What it really needs, we maybe don't know yet because there's so little known about it. Mm -hmm. um, but it definitely is here. Uh, and un unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I don't know yet... Um, jury's still out it was in the area that got hit really hard by the tornado mm. so that's obviously changed the habitat here and will that change it in a, in a positive or negative way for this firefly we don't know yeah. um, 
so far it's this that tornado hit two years ago so far they're still here um, and hopefully if they don't like this area because it's too much light or something uh, hopefully there's still some area on the preserve that they will like that mm -hmm. they can move to um, again back to the whole issue Rob brought up you know and explained really well the connectivity issue hopefully mm -hmm. if, if they don't like it here there'll be some place on a property we have that they can move to mm -hmm. um, but it's just another cool species that that's not well known that is completely dependent on these types of environments uh, and uh, th that's one of the things that keeps me you know talking about why you do what you do this is another thing you know when I find out about something like that it gets me excited mm -hmm. say, okay cool let's let's protect that you know yeah yeah like what else might be exactly. here or around we are uh, planning a um, bio blitz it would actually have been this summer um, but COVID threw uh, everything off uh -huh. so we are planning a bio bit a blitz um, with the Indiana Academy of Science and probably a lot of volunteers uh, and it will be here next summer nice. so I'm really excited about that because uh, those things typically will find things that on a preserve that they didn't know about and in many cases have discovered new species mm -hmm. uh, so um, been <coughs> talking to them and and have that all planned out uh, and so uh, I'm excited about that I was really looking forward to it this year but it's just things got delayed last summer so uh, we're on the next one planned for next year nice some very large trees that yes. came yeah. down. Yeah. So this is, I mean, you can see the size and they get a lot bigger than this one that's to our right. You know, it was tough to see all these goes down when that yeah. tornado hit. Yeah. No, you, you guys <laughs> added quite a mess to there. Oh, yes. Like yeah. It took months to clean, uh, clean yeah. up and we did it all, you know, with staff and volunteers and, uh, and it was, you know, hard work and, and a little dangerous with all these trees all tangled up. But, mm -hmm. you know, we did it safely. And uh, the boardwalk actually held up fairly well. It was more cleaning up the debris and getting it off the boardwalk. Mm -hmm. um, just under the conditions and just the amount of it. It was, a lot of people thought, you know, that we were just going to be crushed by how much damage it did to the boardwalk. But I think mm -hmm. we were more concerned about it hit one of the nicest patches yeah. of forest on the preserve mm -hmm. as far as like oak and hickory and back yeah. there those oaks you know were you know easily over 100 years old mm -hmm. and just twisted them and snapped them right off I mean mm -hmm. it's a natural event but it still was hard to see it you know it didn't hit the area where all the dead ash trees are <laughs> or all the just solid maple forest it hit the most diverse part of the preserve you yeah. know and yeah. the, and some of the oldest trees but they'll rebound um, and you can see there's a lot of growth in there already mm -hmm. um, it's still hard to look at for me just to see all the destruction. Mm -hmm. um, the boardwalk, you, you can hardly tell. We've repaired it, um, but the trees, you just, you know, it's just going to be that way. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, no one, no one was hurt, and uh, mm -hmm. the boardwalk's repaired, and uh, people can come out and see the power of nature. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of awesome. Yeah. But, um, yep. There's some young oaks coming up right now, actually. Just oh, right yeah. There. And, and I've seen already seen some new species of uh, wildflowers pop up in these areas that, mm -hmm. that weren't there before. Um, so, not ne not necessarily new, but this expanding their population on the preserve. Um, mm -hmm. 
So I mean, it, you know, there'll be that side of it that you just have to kind of focus on on the changes uh, and see how it succession brings a lot of diversity. So we're just kind of reverted back to an earlier successional state. And yeah. place to see red-headed woodpeckers oh. as you might have guessed with all these dead snags yeah uh, maybe we'll be lucky and see one today this is one of those areas we talked about uh, we're talking about like the changes in hydrology and how that impacts the the habitat and this is an area that um, has changed hydrologically a number of years ago, I think when probably when beavers first got in here and then the farming was stopped and the ditches and 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 drain tiles and different things probably stopped working the way they had been. And this area started flooding more. You can see a lot of trees that have died. I mean, I'm sure some of those are ash trees that have died mm -hmm. from the emerald ash borer, but mm -hmm. the majority of these have died because of flooding. This area is, is almost always another one of those areas that almost always has water. You can see the cattails, mm -hmm. the evidence mm -hmm. that's obviously a really wet environment and usually if the vegetation is off you can see standing water you'll see geese and ducks swimming through there mm -hmm. uh, it's not deep I've walked through it but it's you know over your muck boots mm -hmm. kind of deep mm -hmm. and um, but it's it's created this nice kind of more open marshy habitat which again another you know like Rob mentioned great place for redhead woodpeckers which mm -hmm. a lot of birders come here th this is a destination for them to see mm -hmm. them because um, they will be in kind of colonies and there's you know, not as common as the other woodpeckers, but uh, but great for a lot of other things. One a species I see here a lot is the green heron. Mm -hmm. I see usually a green heron in this area uh, when I'm here, um, and just you hear the frogs and lots of dragonflies because it's a little more open. Mm -hmm. A lot of button bush, uh, and we we've, we've tried to maintain some of that just to, to create the views. But almost all of this is just naturally mm -hmm. open area. Mm -hmm. We wanted to actually extend the boardwalk further. It's kind of funny, and we we kept working this. the the deck The old deck actually was a little before we replaced it. It was a little further back in the woods, and I'm like, let's extend this out into this open area. So you can have kind of a 360 view of the open area because right mm -hmm. now we can only kind of see, you know, maybe 180 of it. You know, mm -hmm. can't see all the way around. But we got out to about the point we're at, and we started driving our posts, and we were putting these posts like eight to ten feet in the ground, and they just they just wouldn't stop going you know we wouldn't <laughs> hit anything solid it was just solid muck and it and if you drove the post in 10 feet in the ground you could just push it or pull it up by your hand it uh, just wouldn't hit any yeah. solid ground so it was we need almost like a floating uh, platform at this point because mm -hmm. it's just hard to to get any solid footing for uh to, to put any structure on it um, mm -hmm. and uh i would like to still extend it out there um I've hiked out there when there's ice on it, mm -hmm. and it's just really neat to be out in the middle of it. And it'd be nice to be out there in the summertime, but it's just so mucky. I don't think we'll be able to get out there any further. <laughs> but yeah, this is a still a very nice point view spot, mm -hmm. though. Right. And uh, yeah, yeah. I I I really like the the different like vegetation um, that we've walked through mm -hmm. uh, in just this relatively short distance mm -hmm. is, is pretty amazing yeah. for for one preserve I mean I know you said 600 acres but I mean there's there is just so much going on here yep. it's really cool 
Mm-hmm. Just a subtle, just a really slight rise in elevation just, you know, gets it above the water table or the water level just that much higher and you mm-hmm. have a totally different, you know, plant community there. Mm-hmm. We did a, Chris and I did a botany class here, kind of tagged along with the botany class mm-hmm. one day and we were actually, it was literally just a couple of weeks before the tornado came in mm-hmm. and if you remember Chris, we were right back there. Mm-hmm. When this was totally different, uh, just sitting in the shade, kind of like on a day like today with the breeze. Uh, but we, you know, we took, we got collected more plant species okay. than I would say I probably collected in a, an entire month in a botany course when I went to school in Arizona, just because of the sheer amount of the diversity here. Mm-hmm. It takes a real takes a real nuanced eye, mm-hmm. you know, to, to spot it, but it's it's immense, mm-hmm. you know, the biological diversity in, in this part of the state, so. Yeah, very cool. And then some of the other properties that, that Rob mentioned that we're trying to, to connect to this, um, ag- again, we obviously visit those, and most of those are not public access preserves, mm-hmm. and, prob- and probably many won't be, just... Mm-hmm for mm-hmm. ecological reasons and just other sensitivities to to the location but um, the they're they're similar but different you know mm-hmm. and, and so if we can connect them all just the diversity of habitat that could be in one large you know corridor of preserves would be immense because we have some really neat upland areas uh, some areas with you know these spring ephemerals that are amazing um, mm-hmm. And some, you know, certain species need that that diversity, you know, to, to do uh, carry out their their kind of their life cycle. Some of the species that maybe spend part of their, you know, some of the, like salamanders and things that need these kind of wetland areas, but then maybe live in a more wooded environment. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So some of these properties are key strategically for us. And Rob's been doing really a really great job at reaching out to these landowners and many, you know. They're not like we just buy land that's on the market. Sometimes we reach out to people to talk mm-hmm. to them about that. And um, it's been very successful. And, and many people, you know, I, I used to work in soil and water years ago and, and work with farmers a lot. And, you know, sometimes conservationists and farmers, you know, don't always see eye to eye. But when you, if you can work with, I've worked with them, you know, in f- conservation for farming practices. And they're all really connected to the land. And that's mm-hmm. what we find mm-hmm. is. Whether they're a farmer or there's somebody that has a home and some property that's been in the family, there's this um, this kind of sense of legacy, um, mm-hmm. and it's not always that they want their name in, in, in it, but they just want to know that this is protected, you know, yeah. and they care about the land, and you know, and, and we do too. When we get the land, we care about it, and I think that's uh, that's what's always encouraging to see is is this real passion for protecting and. Um, and they they may have a different reason than we do, mm-hmm. but it's it's I think in the end we all have like the same goal, mm-hmm. but maybe different motivations for doing it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've been protecting. I mean, we've had a presence here for 30 years now, and uh, a lot of landowners in the area have, you know, bought in and really become supporters in what we do. And uh, I think just, uh, uh, you know, it makes me feel good to know that we have that, you know, we're perceived of in in good regard with our neighbors here in Mm -hmm. Bean Blossom Bottoms. And and that has made some landowners interested in 
you know, perhaps protecting their land with us. So, you know, it's just all about playing sort of the long game. Yeah. This is work that started long before I got involved in Sycamore and hopefully will continue long afterwards. But, uh, you know, every, every year we just keep uh, doing, we don't want to say protecting more and more, but I think we keep building upon mm -hmm. each year, yeah. uh, whether it's through a, a stewardship project or a land acquisition. And uh, I think, you know, what you see now at Bean Blossom Bottoms is kind of the, the cumulative effect of all of those efforts over the past 30 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, the, yeah, the long game is like, that's the name of, of like the whole, the whole goal for restoration, right? It's just, yeah. just protect it, restore it and, and mm -hmm. let time happen. Right. <laughs> I think the other key for me has been, uh, and, and I, I see it, I see us as an organization doing more of it and um, is like building partnerships, you mm -hmm. know, not just like Rob was saying, like these relationship with our neighbors, which is, is vital and extremely important and you know, maybe one of our biggest priorities in a way, um, but also building these partnerships within the, the conservation community. Mm -hmm. Well, not just conservation community, but especially there because, as we mentioned earlier, just the struggles you have of trying to do your work you know mm -hmm. the limitations you have but you know kind of that synergy you need and, and that working together and you know one of the things we do a lot of is you know the strategic acquisitions not only apply to, to the areas we want but also how can we maybe help other mm -hmm. groups you know we've helped grow you know the preserves you know the the Potoka River National Wildlife mm -hmm. work with them a lot they manage one of our preserves down there Columbia Mine and then we help acquire property for them sometimes to help build on their 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 refuge there and mm -hmm. we've done that with Goose mm -hmm. Pond and building on blocks of state forest mm -hmm. and state parks and things mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. so um, it's not just about growing the land we have but it's just about thinking on a landscape level how mm -hmm. can we how can every like Rob said we would love to protect every piece of ground we could mm -hmm. but again you know the limitations of how we can manage that and fund that. Um, so trying to get the biggest bang for the buck in a way, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. if we can get a block of land that's already adjacent to another big block of land, whether we own it or not, if it's protected, then we just expanded that that mm -hmm. range for those for that habitat. Yeah. And that, uh, not every acre, though, people don't understand. Not every acre acre is equal. You mm -hmm. know, and it's not even just because it's adjacent that that's a slam dunk. You know, mm -hmm. it, it it could be really bad habitat or mm -hmm. just full of invasives and another property that equal size might just be you know pristine or you know have some rare plant community or something but mm -hmm. um, thinking long term you know building on on that that long game mentality is you know every piece of land we protect that's part of a bigger protected land is just going to help grow that and, mm -hmm. and give more diversity to that potentially you know and mm -hmm. So I think uh, having this uh, long-term vision is, is, is vital. Yeah. It's the day-to-day, -day, you can get bogged down in the weeds on it, you know, literally, and uh, forget the, the what the what the goal is mm -hmm. long-term. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I really, I like that you, you know, both bring up, like, the, the community aspect of this because, I mean, 
just standing in the middle of the woods, it is, it seems like an isolated area, but yeah, like, it doesn't stop, like, the landscape is right. continuous. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. the idea. Right. But, yeah. uh, and we, we obviously, we're a nonprofit, and, and we don't function without a community of people mm-hmm. um, because we rely on donors and, and members and, you know, s- foundations and grants and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it all comes from the community. And, and then when, when we are able to provide public access on, you know, a preserve, then there's, it's open to anybody. You don't have to be a member. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, it's there's no there's no fees to, to use our properties, and uh, and so I, I you, you it's it's a little different environment to work in, um, and so I I don't think people fully understand that, and that's that's part of us educating people that you know we're and uh, other land trusts have had the same issue. They're like, well, you're part of the parks, you know. I, mm-hmm. Even some of my family says ask me if I've been working at the park. I was like, I don't work for the parks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to get that concept of what a land trust is. Mm-hmm. And I didn't fully understand it when I started here. I mean, I, I, I knew the name and the concept and even did mm-hmm. some research. But to understand all the intricacies of it, you know, it's 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 a lot different than, than you might think if you're not familiar with what they actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's just another niche in that conservation um, community of mm-hmm. you know how we fill mm-hmm. a void that others, mm-hmm. the other other groups c- maybe can't fill, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's why I think it's great to build a partnership because we just make each other stronger. Yeah. You know, the the federal government can do great things, but they also have limitations too. Mm-hmm. You know, and us being non non governmental, we have maybe some flexibility in areas they don't, and but don't have maybe the the resources that they might have, and. Mm-hmm. So you can really kind of complement each other. I'm trying to realize this little gap, you know, like in the tornado damage. I mean, this area that we just walked through is it's not as was not as bad as it was just you know, hundred yards that way and. Right over here, yeah. you know, just how they kind of go through the landscape, I guess. Real patchy, yeah. 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 You can see the size of some of the trees that went down. These old oak trees, it's, it's my theory that it was just a combination of the root structure and the soil conditions at the time mm-hmm. uh, probably being waterlogged and you know the roots aren't holding as well mm-hmm. and then having you know like a full canopy just for the the winds to catch it and just knock them over because a lot of you you know if you, I bet if you were to do a survey we'd find a lot of the larger trees that went down at kind of like the root ball with these larger mm-hmm. old oak trees yeah and this is like a two and a half foot diameter ish or three <laughs> it's yeah, a very large yeah tree. yeah this is one of the bigger ones that went down i think yeah. so wow yeah tough tough to see but again you know you just part of that natural cycle that mm-hmm. we've been kind of referring to just something you just kind of have you know to accept a little bit and mm-hmm. this, this place will come back and it see what it's like mm-hmm. yeah 
dynamic nature. You know, we try to sometimes try to mimic, you know, nature in these patches, you know, where that you create this diversity and, you know, whether it's uh, your forest management practices and you're creating some openings or your, you know, different logging methods. We don't, we don't do any timber on our properties, but, you know, I know state forests and stuff will try different practices to create habitat as well as do their, their, their harvest. But, um, and if you do prescribed fire, you know, sometimes that patchiness of a burn creates a lot of good boardwalk. We got a lot of water here, so <laughs> sloshing around. Um, but the the tornado did that. You know, it created a lot of patchiness, which mm -hmm. benefits some things. As I say in conserv in our stewardship, there's winners and losers sometimes. You know, you, you whenever you do a practice, you know, some things aren't going to like it, and some things are. And I think it's the same with that tornado. I'm sure some species that like that more solid mature forests aren't going to like the, the openings, but then some species really depend on that. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, now for your people listening, we're walking on, you may, you may hear it, the sloshing and the footsteps. We're now walking on the wooden section of the boardwalk. We call it a punch-in because of the style. There's no posts that the boards just kind of lay on the ground on other cross ties and there's enough water now that it's actually floating a little bit as we walk. It's sloshing, which is kind of cool and kind of fun, but you got to kind of watch your step. Mm -hmm. And so this is how a big section of the boardwalk is, and obviously you can see it would be challenging to build it unless it's dry. Uh -huh. There's water, and um, and this has gotten worse over the years in the short time that I've been here, and I think again thanks to the beavers changing some of the hydrology and we've had some really wet years the last few years so, so I'm sure it's part the climate as well as just some flooding events but this is an area that if you look around it's completely changed because of the tornado yeah. um, just you know almost like it was logged or something there's just a lot of trees gone trees that are still standing a lot of them are dead some of that is ash tree mm -hmm. but um and those didn't go down because they as rob pointed out they 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 didn't have any leaves to catch the wind and so they stood which would have been fine if some of them went down not not that we want all to go down because they do provide some cavities but um but all the trees with leaves in this area almost all of them went down um and the few that have leaves now have completely re-sprouted and they're not very you know not quality trees now so they're just kind of all messed up but uh, mm -hmm. this area is very open now so you can see a lot of uh, red maple coming back mm -hmm. from sprouts from trees that went down or just young ones um, um, swamp cottonwood a lot of swamp cottonwood mm -hmm. is kind of it's been throughout the place but that's really liking some more sun right here and what's kind of cool is some of these trees that are kind of been these hickories a lot of the hickories didn't go up didn't uproot or didn't snap they just bent over uh -huh. you can see them they create uh -huh. these kind of arches uh, some people call them harp trees uh, and they create this arch and if they don't die then they start shooting up these branches and it's kind of cool looking uh, yeah uh, they get they're, they're a hazard if you have to cut them so anyone that's ever out cutting trees uh, be very careful of a tree that's bent over it's got a lot of mm -hmm. it's got a lot of tension in there but uh, if they stay that way because they're pinned down or they're bent over and they re-sprout, they kind of create kind of a neat mm -hmm. shape to them. Um, 
That's another history of, of disturbance right. kind of indicator yeah, thing. Right, So if you're out in a I, – when I see one of these in a forest and like that doesn't have a huge opening like this, and I always look at it, and I'm like, what happened there? You know, and I try to figure out – you know, probably a tree fell over its top when it was young and it mm-hmm. grew. I've seen some with huge limbs shooting off the top of it that are almost like trees. And it's kind of, it's really cool to see how that trees, you know, they're just resilient. They just want to keep growing. And, um, but yeah, some more evidence of the damage here. And mm-hmm. Nice. Now, really, really neat area. Just with the, so it was drained and farmed and then restored. And then the torn, or the, the ash borer comes through and knocks out all these trees. Right. And then things come back in and then you can get a tornado. Right, and right. And uh, it's still looking very alive. It's just amazing right. how, like, you know, just, yeah, those those cycles. And mm. it's very, very cool. The resiliency of nature is pretty phenomenal. Mm-hmm. No matter what gets thrown at it, 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 wants, to, it wants to keep going, you know, and mm-hmm. it just finds a way. And, uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and it, it, you know, it's already changed a lot in two, two years now, you know, since not quite two years, but close to two years. Mm-hmm. It's getting a lot greener. You know, last year was still pretty ugly looking here. You know, just like the devastation, like something came through. And you know, mm-hmm. But now these young trees are sprouting, and it's a lot the lot more dense vegetation. So mm-hmm. now yeah, I can start imagining some species that like that shrubby habitat coming in here, you know. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I can only imagine. Yeah, like being being here right after the fact would be just totally like just like oh. <laughs> it was it was hard. <laughs> yeah, if we continue on down, we'll see a little bit more of what it was like. There's a section that we that we haven't cleared yet. Oh, okay. So should we just should we do the whole loop at this point, maybe? Or at least yeah, at least go see that part. Yeah. Okay. Just yeah. Decide, yeah. see that you know this obviously takes a lot of uh, continual repair and maintenance you know having all this wood and in a wet area and so boards rot boards get loose you've seen a few that are loose we were just out here too just uh maybe two weeks ago and did quite a few repairs and um you know checked everything so the boards just continually come loose and mm. and then you have to carry all this stuff out here by hand and so it's a real challenge uh, but we've come up with some systems using some carts and different things that mm-hmm. we've bought and, or even made ourselves just to, to to make it a little easier for us and then get some volunteers out to help but yeah. it's kind of fun to come out here and work because this is a cool place mm-hmm. but it's can be hard and hot and buggy but uh, uh, but it's also one of our most visited preserves so we have to kind of stay on top of the maintenance of it mm-hmm. because it, you can't like let it let it go for a while because people are going to be out there and you want them to be safe and have a good experience Mm -hmm. yeah so this area is uh, a section that's just kind of dead ends Uh, and it actually this boardwalk ends in a little bit and this a little bit of a short out and back trail Mm. Uh, but you this is what it this is kind of what it was like that we had to clear this is just a particularly 
difficult area with a kind of a hazardous hanging tree that mm -hmm. we're just kind of letting run its course. So eventually that will come down and we'll clean this area up and maybe open it back up to the public or close it. We haven't decided yet. Mm -hmm. but uh, So this is an area of tornado damage that we haven't actually done any clearing on yet. So Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's kind of nice, you know, visitation has been so high here uh, at all of our public access preserves, really, in, you know, the, the COVID era. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of nice to keep it closed mm -hmm. just so we can kind of, you know, restrict public access. So this is just for the plants and animals. I think it's important to, you know, when we on our public access properties like this one to kind of keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure there's some areas that are... Uh, sort of not open to the public, just so they are protecting that, you know, the the, the plants and animals and, and natural qualities there without any human impacts or disturbance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think for the most part, people understand. I know sometimes people are like, "Oh, why? That's my favorite trail. Why is it closed?" <laughs> but then it's yeah. like, well. It will stay good if we close it for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think that's um, that is tough because uh, uh, people, you know, get used to going to places. But I think it's, you know, we need to always be mindful of the impacts we're having, mm -hmm. especially as more and more people get out. And you know, when I grew up and started backpacking, you know, back in the '90s. Uh, really practice kind of like wilderness ethics mm -hmm. and low income low impact backpacking and and backcountry ethics you might say and it's almost like we need like a, a nature preserve ethic mm -hmm. you know in terms of uh how to conduct yourselves and and behave if you will when you're at a, a natural area mm -hmm. even if it's just a small little nature preserve because anytime you go off of the trail or kind of pick some plants that are along the trail and so forth uh it has a, a cumulative effect. Mm -hmm. Now, at this place, obviously, you're confined to a boardwalk, which, you know, uh, kind of intrinsically limits a lot of that. Mm -hmm. But uh, at some of our other nature preserves, we've had a, a lot of sort of unauthorized trail construction, if you will, by visitors going to see particularly nice or scenic areas. And mm -hmm. so that's something that we're, we have to watch out for. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I know in our correspondence you had mentioned your own burn season um, mm -hmm. and uh, how many of your preserves or uh, areas do you, do you burn? Uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, we, uh, I was, I'm, I'm involved with the Indiana Prescribed Fire Council, which is fairly new and, and and growing, hopefully. And we just had our annual meeting virtually yesterday, and we were talking to you know, practitioners across the state from, you know, federal to state to, to private and nonprofit groups and talking about the reports. Uh, for us personally, um, we are, uh, as we mentioned, we're kind of a young stewardship department still, and so fire has kind of been on our radar, but we're still in the early stages. We have been burning our preserve, uh, Columbia Mine Preserve at Potoka River National Wildlife Refuge for a number of years now, but that's always been handled by the staff there at the Fish and Wildlife 
uh, at the refuge officer by the Fish and Wildlife staff. Heath Hamilton and Bill McCoy, who was formerly the manager there and now is actually retired and on our board, uh, and now Rick Spears, manager there, they've kind of been in charge of managing that preserve and they, as the way they manage all their land on that, on that wildlife refuge there. Um, so prescribed fire is one of the tools they use and so the crews from Big Oaks and Muscatatuck help with the burns there. I've been fortunate to help them with that. But as far as like Sycamore doing burns uh, in-house or kind of being in charge of the burns, we just did our first one this year. Oh, nice. And we used a contractor, uh, Dan McGuckin at a Habitat Solutions uh, out of the Columbus area, conducted that burn for us. Um, so it was kind of a big moment for us to finally um, be able to kind of start doing that more on our ourself. I mean, so we only technically have burned two properties, uh, but we are we have plans and hopes to to start using prescribed fire a lot more. Um, but it's it's a challenge, uh, both um, you know, since we're so we're small and new to it, is finding ways to do it. Uh, we can't do it in house. Um, we just don't have the staff to do that. Mm -hmm. So then we uh, have to either, um, you know, go with a contractor or maybe go with a partner. And that's, uh, I've been, I've, I've got my red card and I've been burning with a lot of um, partners like TNC, DNR, and Fish and Wildlife to get experience and to expand my knowledge, but also to build that relationship so that maybe we can kind of work together um, and, and support each other. And uh, I know all those agencies have talked about trying to do that. It's just really difficult because there are some liability and insurance issues. And then it's just like when, when it's burn season, as you know, because I know you do prescribe fire, everybody is, when you get a window, everybody wants to burn. Mm -hmm. So if you're relying on help, whether it's partners <laughs> or volunteers or somebody, they probably already got another burn. So you, unless you're the first one to advertise, you might have trouble finding help, mm -hmm. which is was a common theme in, in the in the meeting the other day. But um, but I, I've from the meeting already, I've had some discussion with some groups that want to help us to do some more burns. We would like to use that tool more often. Mm -hmm. um, I think it it has its benefits. It is again, it's one of those things you have to look at both sides of it. it there are costs to it, you know, not just financial costs, but you know impacts that you can you have to do it at the right time timing is a big issue and how you prepare and manage the forest and then invasive species it creates a whole issue I mean, it can help manage some but it can help spread some mm -hmm. so um, even though fire is natural and people that like doing it th there are you have to look at both sides of it and uh, we have some preserves that are really well situated for I think putting fire on the ground pretty easily um, and I think they're also in areas that would be less uh, concerned about other impacts like smoke and things like that. Um, but we, we did one this spring that w went extremely well and um, um, and so we're excited that this is this kind of uh, the first step in, in many to come. Nice. Quite a bit of ground and a lot of different properties, but 
you know, a majority of them, if I had to classify, would be, you know, more kind of these wooded hillsides kind of thing. You know, mm -hmm. it just says a real basic definition and description of them, I guess. Um, a lot of our properties in Monroe and Brown County, even though we cover a large area, a majority are clustered in these counties. And so you kind of have those Brown County hills feel to a lot of our properties. So you have, which would make for really good burns. You know, you could do a lot of work, especially if you're interested in regenerating oak and you know, oak hickory forest. And we have some of those dry ridges that would be good burns for that. But we have such a diverse of habitat too. You can see here the diversity on this one preserve and we have other preserves that are very kind of shrubby and more of these old fields and farms that have in early successional stages that fire could be good to set back succession a little bit or to manage some invasive. So I think there's a lot of potential for how we could utilize that but to help us especially when we're trying to to create the maybe I like this. I was on a webinar this past year. Um, you know, everybody's doing Zoom and webinars during COVID. Um, so I took advantage of a lot of those. And um, I, I thought some, some interesting people were talking about using fire, but also just stewardship activities to really help not only to meet objectives, but to maybe thinking long term on making things more resilient to for the future, you know, and as far as this whole again thinking long term not only in strategy of acquisitions but management to, to make things healthier because we just keep you know between you know concerns about maybe changes in climate to invasive species not just plants but you know pests like the emerald ash borer and things like that mm -hmm. to creating habitat that's more resilient and not just more diverse but more resilient and um, I think it was really a, a neat way to another way to to think about things and this makes this job so fascinating but so challenging is all the things you got to take into consideration mm -hmm. all the factors yeah um, and and <laughs> this is what we mentioned a little while ago the, the unknowns you mm -hmm. know trying to, to predict the unknowns and it's like you know we don't know what we're going to face next mm -hmm. you know? just like here you didn't know we were going to get a tornado so y you know you can't really predict that but it, it shows you having some diversity and not having a lot of invasive pressure. If we had a bunch of invasives in here and then suddenly you open up all this light, that could be devastating. So thankfully we didn't. Mm -hmm. um, so thinking about the unknowns, you know, what if, you know, if we have a forest of all one or two species and, you know, some new species, invasive comes in, you know, pest that just wipes them all out. So creating that diversity, um, thinking about what if we suddenly get drier or wetter, a species is going to be able to adapt to that. So mm -hmm. There's only so much we can do, so it's not like we have that much power as we, uh, you know, we learn. I think the more I learn and more I do, the more I realize I have less power than I think. But uh, but we do make an impact, and so trying to, to make things maybe more sustainable on its own, mm -hmm. you know, by us doing the right things is, is a, a way to, that I try to think about it. Yeah, from the resiliency side of things, um, as far as land acquisitions go here in Bead Blossom Bottoms, as we are, you know, it's not just the bottom land areas, but we are starting to look at some of the upland areas that are adjacent uh, mm -hmm. to these bottom land protected areas, just to kind of, kind of connect the bottom land with the upland hardwood forest, and and uh, there's some interesting modeling on climate change that 
indicate that that's going to be an effective, mm. you know, strategy for, for conservation and in, in, in climate change resiliency and so forth. So, uh, taking in climate change factors as well. Yeah, the big unknown, unknown, known <laughs> thing. <laughs> right, right, right. And and you know, either way, doing things like this. Whatever happens, I think the more you do to to make something healthier, you know, <laughs> whatever your reason is, and even if you end up being wrong, if it's healthier, then that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. You know, some people, you know, worry about that, and there's debate on certain things. Yeah, I think some things are, are less debatable than others, but there may be some factors or points you can debate. Um, but to me, it's like, well, if you just do the thing that seems like the right thing, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, there's not always a clear right. I mean, there's not always a clear black and white answer. I think there's usually a right, you know, and a wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think if you do the thing that's going to make something healthier and stronger, then that's a good thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And and it's going to be more adaptable and and survive and 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 be. I like to think of that that old saying is like have something that's going to be for seven generations on, you know. Mm -hmm. So I try to think long term like that, and um, mm -hmm. so making it stronger and more resilient is 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 always a good thing mm -hmm. you know i mean i know I, whatever your reasoning for doing that it's i think it's a good thing mosey yeah One interesting thing, uh, Rob and I were talking about this this morning, and I, I didn't want to forget to mention it because I think it's an interesting little kind of ties ties up uh, what we're doing here. And then you know, Rob talked about connectivity and talking about you know these acquisitions, strategic acquisitions, and this focus in this bean blossom areas. One of the first properties we bought here after Barbara gave us the initial piece uh, was I think 80 acres. A few years after we got the initial donation, so that that kind of was one of our one of Sycamore's first land purchases, uh, and so it was a big deal, you know. Mm -hmm. And then it was adding on to something we already had, and it was a small organization, so we didn't have a lot of land already. Um, and that land was called Habitat for Herons because there was a great blue heron rookery here, mm. and so you know that was a big uh, that helped drive, I think, probably the funding to get that, to buy that and stuff. And and then it was really exciting. Well, then <laughs> the Eagles moved in, we talked about. Then the herons disappeared, uh -huh. you know. <laughs> and so the, the habitat for herons kind of went away. But just a few years ago, uh, we acquired a property on Bean Blossom Creek, kind of upstream from here, right, from. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, on that property is a great blue heron rookery. Oh, nice. That is most likely because it's not far as as a heron would fly. Mm -hmm. uh, good chance that that those are descendants of the original nice. rookery, and so now we're protecting it. It's not a public access preserve. You know, great blue herons are, you know, they're a little skittish when you get near a rookery, mm -hmm. which is phenomenal if you've never seen one. It's just really cool to see. There's these big birds in these trees that are usually solitary, and suddenly they're nesting together. Mm -hmm. But Rob and I went to check it out this spring just to make sure it's still there, and they all look healthy, and they were all there. There's like uh, 28 nests, I think. We counted 28 
Yeah. Uh-oh. So in, in like two trees, two large sycamore trees, maybe three trees, uh, it was really cool to see them, but they, you know, they, di- they didn't like us, and we were keeping a good distance away. There's a stonotary on the boardwalk. Oh, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Even the warblers like a boardwalk. Um, there's, there must be a pair, and it's right near the bridge where we saw them before. Um, but it's really cool to, to, to kind of tie that, that together and um, protect the herons and This this area has, you know, several. I don't know if we mentioned it, but several distinctions. You know, it's a it is a state dedicated nature preserve, and it is a. Do you remember what it's called? Like an important wetland. Do you remember? What oh gosh, I'm yes, I'm spacing it though. It's like an important, significant wetland area. Yes, mm-hmm. something like that. And I think uh, Audubon is classified as an important bird area. I think huh. that's what is IDA. I think important bird area. Um, but it has a distinction, like a dis- wetland of distinction or some mm. by like a wetland group, which is I think more of a national group, not just a local group. Um, but uh, so, I mean, we're proud of it and we, you know, we, but I think other people see the value of it mm-hmm. just even outside of our community of people. Um, Anyway, um, I do want to thank you both, like, so much for walking around. I want to note, this is, I think, the first interview I've done where it was, like, hot, so that was cool. Um, <laughs> most of the time I've been freezing people out in their preserves, <laughs> but this was, this was wonderful, and yeah. uh, I just, I appreciate you taking the time to to talk about Bean Blossom and, and what you do here, and... Yeah. Just thank you for doing that too and keeping yeah. up that work. Well, thanks to you for spreading the word about you know taking care of our natural areas and ecological restoration and land stewardship. The more people that know, the better. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to share what we've done and what we're trying to do and uh, and be part of that conversation. You know that you're having with a lot of people that that I admire and and respect for their hard work and dedication. You know, I've seen some of the people you interview, and I'm sure I'm excited to see who else you get next. But, um, and hopefully the people that listen, um, whether they're supporters or not of Sycamore, hopefully they support whoever they like to go visit and where they like mm-hmm. to go visit and just support this kind of work because it's, uh, I think it's important. It's important for everybody, you know. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think this is, you know, this big world that we all share is, kind of important, you know, that we take care of it, and I think uh, we can do all do a better job of that, and I hope that people get inspired to get out and enjoy it, and do whatever they can to help protect it and spread the word. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Huge thank you, again, to Sycamore Land Trust, Chris Fox, and Rob McRae. For more information on the work they do, I've included links in the show description for this episode. There, you will also find a link to the Midwestoration Buy Me a Coffee page. 
Thank you, and stay tuned for more Midwesteration.